What's your goal? Are you trying to be rich from an income perspective, a never-ending cycle? Or are you looking to be wealthy from a mindset perspective? If it's the latter, tune in this week as we're talking about funded contentment for everyone. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Hello, welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I'm so happy you're joining us for another week. Wow, I just finished this conversation with Brian Portnoy. And honestly, this conversation spoke to my soul. Brian's work is inspiring, uplifting, and meaningful. During our conversation, we talked about how and why Brian realized that it's time to draw a better financial map with a true compass. We touch on so many different topics. We touch on the difference of being rich and wealthy We talk about the disciplined pursuit of enough, what is enough, and how to underwrite a meaningful life. And this is central to Brian's work, especially in his book, The Geometry of Wealth, which I highly, highly, highly recommend you go and purchase. This book I've read about three, four times actually already. It is wonderful, and I cannot recommend it anymore. Also, on June 15th or 16th, can't remember the exact date, Brian released his new company, Shaping Wealth, which you can go check it out. They got a really neat video and I know more content's coming its way. Towards the end, we even talk about how investing could be looked at with a view of when good enough is good enough. Because underwriting a meaningful life, that's a term Brian uses often, starts with the meaning, knowing ourselves, knowing our purpose, knowing ourselves before we jump into the investment decisions. And if you want to find out more about Brian, I highly recommend you checking out his books, The Geometry of Wealth and The Investor's Paradox. Also, take a look at his website, his new company, where he is the founder and CEO of shapingwealth.com. I do have an ask. If you've been enjoying these conversations, like the one you're about to hear with Brian, I really ask you maybe do two things. Share this episode with a friend, someone you think who will find a lot of value in Brian's message, and head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate it. I will stop talking about this and let you hear the conversation yourself. Enjoy this wonderful interview with Brian Portnoy. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. Today, my guest is Brian Portnoy. So who is Brian Portnoy? He's creating simplicity in the complex world of money. He's an educator, entrepreneur, a writer, and investor. Brian is one of the world's leading experts on the psychology of money. He's written multiple best-selling books, including The Geometry of Wealth, which is absolutely wonderful. He has 20 years of experience as an investor, educator in the hedge fund and mutual fund industries. He's a CFA charter holder and earned a PhD from the University of Chicago. Brian, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm very happy to have you on the podcast. Your book, The Geometry of Wealth, really, really spoke to me. I feel like every word almost resonated with me. And so I'm excited to explore that. But on this podcast, we really look at the intersection between our minds, our money, and what matters most. And we do that by stories. I find stories are a really good way to get a point across. And as for myself and our audience, as we aspire to look for ways to deepen and improve our relationship with money so that we can one day or someday achieve this level of feeling, a level of financial well-being, I want to start with your story. I think we know about stories is that our past stories, we can't change them, but we can also often go back, edit, alter, or change the meaning that we're prescribing to it. And for your life story, Brian, your journey, I thought we'd start by you reflecting or commenting on this excerpt from your latest book, The Geometry of Wealth, which I feel like pertains to perhaps some of the past stories that you've had. 
And so the excerpt goes, I've come to realize that conventional financial maps are aligned with the wrong North Star. From my vantage point, the land, our real journey looks quite different. It's time to draw a better map with a truer compass. Can we start there? What meaning that has? Yeah. So I have a peculiar and very non-traditional entry into the world of finance and money and money management, you know, because I do have a PhD in social sciences from University of Chicago. And so I was on the other side of the quad. I wasn't in the econ department. I didn't study behavioral finance with Thaler, none of that. I was studying capitalism and institutions and, and other things from a political and sociological, historical point of view. So, you know, I ended up in the world of finance in really accidental manner. And it was clear from the start that the maps at play in this world were maps drawn with numbers and that there's something reverent about finance where there's a right answer. And there's not only an integer, there's, there's numbers after, after the decimal so that more quantification and more precision is all else equal better. And, you know, what became clear on a kind of two-track experience, a, a professional one and a personal one, is that I just, at a certain point, stopped believing that to be true. I'm not saying that two plus four doesn't equal six, but I am saying that when you add two and four and you come up with six, whether that's the right number is wholly um, subject to your own personal interpretation. So I think the sort of one of the key assumptions in all of finance and economics is that more is better, right? So you, if you can make uh, $100 selling something, great. And if you can make $200, better. If you're worth a million bucks, but then because you've made good investments or had a good income, now you're worth 5 million bucks, that's better. More is better. And... The map that I guess I've been working on both personally and professionally for a number of years now is less and less measured by a quantitative scale and more and more measured by qualitative, psychological, sociological considerations. And it makes personal finance very personal, which is good mm -hmm. because it no longer becomes a zero-sum game where my loss is your gain or vice versa. So depending on how I think about what's meaningful to me, what my benchmarks are, my personal benchmarks, I can win whatever game I think that I'm playing. And me winning that game probably in most cases has nothing to do, Sean, with you playing and winning your game because our benchmarks have nothing to do with each other. I mean, we can say in a different vein, well, we're both measuring our acumen versus the S&P 500 or the MSCI Global Stock Index or the Barclays Aggregate or whatever quantitative investment benchmark we want. And, you know, that to me is a game that I was involved with for nearly two decades, one that people make an enormous amount of money playing, but I've come to see the game as silly and beside the point and decided I wanted to build those maps with the important stuff front and center. And the important stuff is leading a life that's meaningful to you. That is the good life, you know, things that going back to the Greeks, we've been kind of thinking about out loud, you know, several thousand years now. If we can define that stuff first and then figure out how money loops into it, I think we're going to all end up being in a much better spot. Lots of insightful stuff there, Brian. Thank you. And as I read more and more of your work, what I really, really appreciate is how you have been able to have so much experience in, say, the hedge fund and mutual fund industry. And now this other side of what is a meaningful life and to use your words, underwrite a meaningful life. But you do a really good job of bringing them together, where I find sometimes we're all on, okay, how do we beat the benchmark, the S&P 500? Or how do we make more portfolio, like maximize the portfolio? Or how do we live more virtuous? And I find you do a really good job bringing it together. So in the book, Geometry Wealth, I mean, we, we'll get to the three shapes that really is your recipe. But your new company, Shaping Wealth, has a very similar tagline or, I guess, desired outcome uh, which, by the way, congratulations, that launched this week. That's very exciting. Uh, the video on your website looks super interesting as a little teaser. But on, on Shaping Wealth in the book, you talk a lot about this idea of funded contentment. Can you explain to our listeners what is funded contentment and what significance can it have on our lives? 
So the the general topic I've been kicking around for the last few years is is it's a term you use, many of us use, financial well being. And it's not something that rolls off the tongue. It's not the most natural of concepts. I think it's much easier, more natural to think about our physical well-being. It's our, you know, our health. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. Our emotional well-being. How are our noggins doing? You know, emotionally, psychologically, and you know, there's happiness and sadness in the world. And I think that's also just in the air. It's something we sort of take for granted. You know, psychology as a science and an art has evolved dramatically over the last 100, 150 years. But let's just stipulate that emotional well-being is is very well accepted as something that we want to focus on. A third bucket that is critically important is spiritual well-being. Just bigger questions about purpose and why and where we fit into this weird, messy, vast universe. We have experts and authorities in those three other well-beings. So we have doctors, we have therapists, we have clergy. And there's something sort of obvious about the questions you want to ask, the help you want to get. There's nothing obvious about the answers. But those are well-trodden areas. I'm coming in and saying there's a fourth area of well-being, financial well-being, that is not derivative of the others. It's its own thing dare I use the term sui generis, like it's its own thing. And it's connected in so many different ways to those other three things. We can dive into to any of that and the connectivity, but suffice it to say that financial well-being is not particularly well understood. It's a multidimensional experience that touches on all three of those other forms of well-being. I coined a phrase in the geometry of wealth called funded contentment, which is one way of saying what true wealth to us is, meaning the ability to underwrite a meaningful life or a life that's meaningful to you. And that I've sort of built as a a gateway or a door to really entering a space where you can think about where money fits into a meaningful life. And, you know, sounds like we'll, we'll kind of get into the process a little bit you know, sort of give away the recipe for free on the book jacket. There's a circle, triangle, and square. Like, there it is, three steps. But the point is that shaping wealth is now, which, like you say, launched this week here in, in you know, June of 21. It's an effort by me and my partners to build educational technology and content and coaching and, and other experiences that gives people the help that they need because I just know from over the course of my career, um, going back, you know, at this point, you know, two decades in finance, that even if you have a superlative understanding of the technical dimensions of finance, that in no way, shape, or form guarantees that you are financially well. It just means that you understand some complex concepts. Tackling this topic of financial well-being requires help. And I decided, you know, a year or two ago that I was going to finally be the entrepreneur that I wanted to be and build a firm that would help people achieve funded contentment. I really like that word because you alluded to earlier, like more, more, more. And well, funded contentment is two words, but funded contentment to me, it makes me feel like, oh, wait, it doesn't have to be more, again, funded contentment. So I think, and obviously that was intentional, but I just really like it. It's not about more, 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 more. And I think that goes back to what you're saying, the zero-sum game where so many of us, it's just like this narrative that I've seen a lot of finance books is rise and grind. How do you make so much money? How do you maximize your money? Where I really feel like you're absolutely right. We're missing this bigger picture of this meaningful life. And for people who aren't familiar with the concept of a meaningful life, and you talk a lot about that, and the and maybe we bring in the circle square and triangle here, but what does living a, a meaningful life actually mean? Yeah, so I'm glad we've booked eight hours uh, to talk today, <laughs> yeah, Sean. <I> know. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. The good thing is, um, I mean, my real passion professionally is simplifying complex concepts. And, you know, years of reading on what's a meaningful life, I, I guess I have a, a pretty simple mental model. I'll start out by saying that I just want to put a pin in a word that hasn't been used yet, but it's probably the most important word, which is enough. You are absolutely correct to say that so much of our financial lives, either as just individuals, consumers, savers, investors, or as people who are professional, it's a quest for more. And that in and of itself isn't a bad thing. It's just that there are wrinkles psychologically, neurologically to the quest for more that we should come to terms with. And then 
importantly, counterpose that quest for more with finding satisfaction with something we call enough. So let me put a pin in the word enough because it, in some ways, you know, what we're really trying to engineer at Shaping Wealth is the disciplined pursuit of enough. But boy, is there a lot of work to, <laughs> there's a lot of wood to chop to even understand what we mean by enough. It's, a, it's so slippery and it's so fascinating. And truth be told, I think my next book, which who knows how many years from now that will be, I think it's going to be on this concept of what is enough from not just financial, but philosophical and religious and anthropological perspectives. Anywho, we have a model to achieve funded contentment. And it's simply defined by three words, purpose, priorities, decisions. The reason that I sort of joke at the beginning of Geometry of Wealth, that book is a prequel to my first one, is that my first book was about investing, making better investment decisions. But better investment decisions actually come at the very end of the process in the quest for true wealth, in the quest for funded contentment. And so I flip the script and I say, well, before you worry about money, why don't you worry about what's really important to you? What is a meaningful life? And I don't mean day-to-day happiness. Everybody loves a dopamine hit. We're all addicted to some form of social media or any form of media or social engagement where you know that dopamine comes on strong and that's great. And the thing about that dopamine hit is that it disappears pretty damn quickly. We're thinking here about sort of the deeper step back sense of, hey, is this a good life? I think there are four sources of of that meaningful life. The mental model, I just call it the four C's, connection, control, competence, context. And I'll say two lines on each. We gain great meaning in life through our sense of belonging. We are social creatures. We are a social species. This isn't a, a preference or an interest in good relationships. It's who we are genetically. Secondly, there's a sense of control that we also crave. And when we have autonomy in life, when we have a sense that we have freedom, liberty, that we can sort of do what we want, that we have a sense of control, that's super important. Three is competence, which is the meaning that we get through our work, our vocation, our hobbies, our passions. We know that our daily grind helps to define, and at some phases of life, it's all that defines who we are. And I think one of the struggles that we've seen in modern capitalism globally is that the nature of labor and work changes. People find it difficult to find meaning through their vocation. So, you know, work is very definitional of our identity. So that's three. And then the fourth one is context which is sort of a big catch-all for having a sense of purpose in life, that tends to come historically uh, for most of us through one of two places. The first is faith, and the second is place. We're not going to go into the history of religion here, but pick your religion. It's very much a narrative about how you fit into the grand scheme of, of things. That could be a deep dive. Place, whether it's your hometown pride or patriotism, love of country, whatever, that is also deeply important to us. And so there we have four sources of meaning. Sense of belonging, autonomy, mastery over a skill or a craft that's really important to us. In some sense, we're connected to something bigger than ourselves. Connection, control, competence, context, those are the four Cs. That's where we start. Don't worry about money. Worry about that stuff. And then once you have some sense of what that is, and by the way, all of us have thought about this you can spend three minutes on this walking down the street and just run through the four C's. And it's interesting to go through layers of the exercise that we actually do for clients, which is to ask how have different sources of meaning mattered differently to you over time? As a kid, growing up, university, career, partnering up, kids, growing old, you know, it changes. It's a, it's a moving target, which is part of like the glory of life. Once you have that figured out, I shouldn't even say that once you figured out, once you've sort of been able to articulate what that is for you right now, then you can begin to shift into stage two, which is setting priorities and not just financial priorities, but some sense of the things that are important to you. How do they rank? And here we do begin to get into kind of a a really important conversation about risk versus reward. Generally in life, from an evolutionary perspective, we survive before we thrive. And so, you know, if you're not alive, 
tomorrow there's really not much to do. There's not much chance you're going to be very fulfilled if you're not around. So priority-wise, we manage risk first, and we reach for the stars second. And so I I spend a lot of time on both non-financial and then financial topics where we think about the ability to protect ourselves, the ability then to find balance in life. It could be generally risk versus reward. Financially, it could be assets versus liabilities. And then the the top, and it's a triangle because there's three elements to priorities in my little framework. The top level is reach or aspire. You know, you get on your tiptoes and and you reach for the really big stuff, bucket list stuff. And then that leads to the sort of quotidian decision-making across all the dimensions of money life. Because now you have a sense of what's important to you. You're going to ask hard and sometimes uncomfortable questions about what connection costs, what does competence cost, what does context cost, how can you afford it? And sometimes there's quantitative answers and sometimes there's not, but still you think through it. And you end up in all of these different dimensions of money life. And to me, there are seven. I I actually don't cover this in the book in a fulsome way, but we are at Shaping Wealth. There's earning, investing, saving, spending, borrowing, and giving. And good Lord, I'm forgetting one of the seven. But there are seven. And across those different dimensions of money life, there are different things to do. Oh, insuring or protecting. That's the seventh. So much of the world that I've been in for years now, meaning financial advice, wealth management, your CFP, this is what you do. So much of that discourse, at least in the American market, is about investing, choosing better stocks, better bonds, better funds, building a better portfolio, all that kind of stuff. And having done that you know, at a relatively high level for a long time, I actually firmly believe that it's the, just about the least important dimension to our money lives. The most important is earning, making an income with obvious connections back to that notion of competence or mastery. Mm-hmm. But once you've earned, then you have to spend on the essentials. You've got to save a little extra. You've got to buy insurance possibly to protect. You might want to think about how you can help others. And somewhere along the way, medium to long term, you want to compound your capital and you do that through investing. But the third portion, the third of the geometry of wealth is how from a behavioral science point of view, we might begin to make better decisions about some of those dimensions of money life. So purpose, priorities, decisions. I have a picture of a circle, a triangle, and a square. Circle because life is round and you're always figuring it out. Triangle because there's three things to prioritize in my view. And then the square is specifically with regard to setting investment expectations which isn't, I'd say, terribly relevant for today. Yeah, and again, I really like this roadmap or compass, to use your word, of of these three shapes, because it does a good job. I, I mean, imagery really, really helps us learn concepts. Now, when we go back to the four C's in the meaning section, you talk about the differentiation between rich and wealthy. And I want to get your stance on that. These are words in the money world, personal finance, we hear all the time. And too often, they're used in similar contexts. So my question is, what is your perspective in the book and in your other work, the difference between rich and wealthy? And then I just got a follow-up question on that one after, but let's start with that. Rich is the quest for more and wealthy is a life that's lived authentically and in alignment where you can achieve funded contentment. I mean, that's the very short answer, but you know, I think rich is a number and wealthy is a mindset. And I'm focused on the latter because we know from our own experiences in life and we also know from a mountain of behavioral research that the quest for more is ultimately unsatisfying because the one thing you want upon achieving more is more. And so it never ends. And so there's sort of this stone of Sisyphus where, you know, you get the next promotion, the next car, the next house, the next whatever. And I can't remember if it's in the book, but I use it all the time in speeches. Like my favorite show of all time is Mad Men. And Don Draper has this great line that basically said, defining happiness is that thing you want right before you want more happiness. That's rich. And we know it. It's almost conventional wisdom that having of more material things, just having a bigger bank account. It's much harder work. And I think a higher ground to achieve if you can begin thinking about how whatever number you have in the bank can be assigned to the things that really matter to you. 
I'm drawing a blank on it, but you call in the goal section, you talk about um, two different type of goals. Basically, one is has meaning towards terminal goals. Yeah, terminal goals versus flow goals. So yeah, that's just making me think of that part. Sorry, I'm jumping around here now, but I'm actually going to park that because I have a question about the three C or four Cs. Okay. I want to go into the flow and terminal goals after, but I just really, really am fascinated by the four C's and like the ability of having that connection, control, competence, and context in relation to rich and wealthy. And one thing that we've seen through capitalism, especially in the last 10 years, is that everyone can't have everything. And to your point earlier about a zero-sum game, having a billion dollars, having Uber's amounts of money, it's very difficult. From an accessibility perspective, I know you've talked about this idea of wealthy can actually be achieved by more, like more people can achieve this than they think. And I think that's an important distinction to put here is that for your argument, it's not just people with high, high, high levels of income are going to be able to experience this. So why don't you touch on the accessibility of the four C's? Yeah. So, you know, we just go back to, you know, this notion that rich is a number and wealthy is a mindset. And I could transpose other words. I could say more is a number, enough is a mindset. And to some extent, we're trying to achieve enough. We're not denigrating more because as human beings, there's evolutionary reasons why we're always striving. If our deep, deep ancestors weren't striving or, you know, working hard to live and grow in in a dangerous environment, we probably wouldn't have their genes in us right now. They probably would have been eaten by a tiger or died of cold or whatever. So when we think about rich versus wealthy, that's a super important distinction. And when we connect it to, you know, this simple mental model of the four C's, the four C's first and foremost have nothing to do with money or finance. You know, that's my mental model for buckets. Other people have different mental models. I try to create as many mental models as is useful. So number one, I can organize my thoughts. And number two, people can use those models to their benefit. You know, there's the old line that all models are wrong, but some are useful. I hope that the 4C model can help people bucket or think about the different ways in which they're leading a meaningful life. And once we come to terms at any moment with across those four C's, what really drives us? And, you know, we're all different. And not only are we different from others, we're different from ourselves through time. Our past self is different than our present self, and our present self is very different than the future self. We can begin to then ask financial questions about, well, how can I afford the things that are truly meaningful to me? And that gets us right down the path of, you know, sort of more normal or standard thinking on on financial well-being. So when you think about your job and how you save and spend and invest and insure and give to others, once you have that much broader context of what matters to you, it becomes a little bit easier. It's not easy, but it's easier. And you made an important point in your question, which is that it makes the whole thing, true wealth, much, much more accessible because we've abstracted from a numerical ranking and we've transitioned to a completely different room where it's all about mindset. So I think I wrote it in the book, but it's certainly a line I talk about all the time is that, you know, true wealth or funded contentment stems from the ability to, to calibrate purpose with planning. So it's not enough to just sit back as a philosopher under a tree and think about the good life, but it's not necessarily a good thing to just go, go, go and not really think about that stuff at all and focus on budgets and portfolios and other financial topics. It's, again, the work that you put in to grow, to be a better version of yourself, to lead a meaningful life, where you take the purpose part and the planning part, and you bring them together. And just like the Stone of Sisyphus, you push the rock to the top of the mountain, you're like, okay, just about there. And guess what happens? Life happens, and the rock's on your head at the bottom of the mountain, and you got to do it over again. But to me, that's the joy of life, of working hard and trying to figure things out and enjoying things along the way. So this is more of a recipe that I'm offering to people to engage in this process. It's not a solution where you say, well, I'm done. I'm now wealthy. You can have that mindset for an hour or a day or a week or a year or a decade, but you can also slip away pretty quickly. So you, you got to kind of stay vigilant. Yeah. And I guess I like the circle for that 
like you've alluded to, it's always going back. And there's a saying that I've always sticks with me is that we're always aspiring and never arriving. And you know, the reason why the four C's speak so much to me is because it's like, that's the answer. And I know that was intentional to enough is when, when I know that I have a connection in my life and control and competence and autonomy, these are things then it almost acts as, it, it is a gift that when some become so reflective that they can understand these things, when this commercial or this person is trying to sell me this or this, you know, I, I know myself, which it's so strange this day and age, sometimes the least person we know is ourself and with all this distraction. So I just think the exercise of the four C's is such a gift within our money life and just in life as we know it. And that's why, again, I want to touch on that accessibility. And when we look at some major income gaps right now, when we look at systems changes, this is what's so neat about what you're doing with Shaping Wealth is you're working with institutions, universities, financial planning people who are then have a broader reach that, you know, it's starting going to start to impact the whole system as we know it. So I just I commend you guys for the work you're doing. So that's very thoughtful and kind. I appreciate that. I made a decision along the way that this was, you know, get into some silly business school jargon, that this was going to be a B2B platform. You know, the mission of the company, the theme of the book and every work that I do is, is funded contentment for everyone because I'd like to, you know, share the mindset, the mental models on what funded contentment is all about. So you, me, our partners, our neighbors, our friends, our family, like that's the audience. I've made a business decision for now and, you know, I've got a team of amazing people alongside me where we want to work through different intermediaries who also have a vested interest in treating their clients and communities really, really well. So you're the financial planner. I'm not. You know very well that for as much as we can talk about financial well-being, even funded contentment, much of what financial planners do across the world is investment advice and insurance, and it's very tactical. And sometimes it's hard to get to that higher level before you come back to the lower level and connect it all. And so what we're seeing actually is a really wonderful demand, or I should just say great conversations with planning firms all over the world who get it, but they need some help in terms of creating content and creating training for their team, different experiences for their end clients. And, you know, it's such early days for us, but we're figuring out how to serve those people in a way that makes material impact on the world and is also, you know, a really good business for me and my partners. Yeah. Your approach really, it gets me thinking of like motivation theory. And if we look at Broadly speaking, the nature of financial planning industry, it's been a lot of, okay, give me the numbers. Here's high level, non-emotionally engaging. Here's the gap. Now the person's like, oh my gosh, I got to save this much for retirement. They're like, here's your analysis. You got to start saving this much. They don't do it. And you have these same conversations over and over. I really see, feel, and, and recognize that when we go to the emotional side first and really dig into what they want, hence the circle of the four C's, the last part, I would like to get your opinion on this. The last part of making the decision to invest is relatively simple at that point. When you first understand why you're investing, if you're the client, would you agree? I would agree. I mean, I'll say two things. One real quick is that, you know, you put this word out there, retirement. What do we even mean by that? First of all, it's a modern invention. Hasn't been around for more than a century or so. There wasn't retirement for most of humanity. You, you work till you died or you worked until you just couldn't move anymore and your family took care of you and then you died. So this is different because of the good parts of medical science. We're now living into our 80s and 90s. And so something called retirement could be 30 years long. This was never planned for. So the conversations that you have with clients as to why do you want to retire? What is that all about? At a certain point, you have to slow down and then finally stop. But it's such a default mindset to say, okay, well, I'm here to help you with your retirement planning. And you're 37 or 42 or 55 or whatever the age is. And you get, I think, into some not great conversations about delaying gratification and saving and investing and things that you should do all else equal. But like, well, what's the life you want to leave between, you know, you don't want to die rich. You want to live wealthy. I just made that up. That's really good, by the way. Yeah. I should write that down. 
you want to live a wealthy life. And I think the evolution of the financial planning business is so fascinating because it's beginning really in the last few years to help people live that wealthy life as opposed to say, okay, you plan on retiring in 2037 and you need $2 million by that date and we're going to run a Monte Carlo simulation and build you an appropriate portfolio. This leads to the second point, which I'll simply say that a lot of the investing stuff has been solved. Mm. Investing is a problem that has been solved. To say that it's been solved isn't to say that you're guaranteed to have that $2 million by 2037, but at a different level, it has been solved in terms of there being measures as sophisticated as they need to be to maximize the probability that that's going to happen. Stuff happens in the world. There could be a world war. Crazy to think there could be a pandemic someday that forces all of us to be in our house for 15 months. That could never happen. Like things happen. So who, who knows? But we have the tools to make as good of an investment as we can for the most part. And this is the reason why Vanguard's now at $7 trillion in assets. I think justifiably, a lot of people have said good enough is, is good enough. I would agree with that. So yeah, you're right. When you get to the very end, when you get through purpose, priorities, and decisions across the other six dimensions of money life, and you get to the very last train station on this ride, it's not terribly complicated. It's one of the reasons why some of the biggest, you know, the wirehouse firms, the biggest financial planning firms in the world, what are they doing now? They're just offering most of their clients model portfolios. Oh, okay, you've got this risk tolerance and this much time to retirement. And so portfolio 14B is going to be great for you. They hit a button and you own portfolio 14B. What they do for the super rich people is make up other stuff and say, oh, 14B, yeah, on paper, that's right for you, but we're going to sell you some super expensive stuff that you, you'll never understand that may or may not make you money, but will make us a ton in fees. That, that's a different part of the business. But for your regular normal people, like portfolio 7A or 14B or 12C, like that's what you get because there's nothing else to figure out. I feel like you saying good enough is good enough. And this is coming from a guy who's been in the hedge fund industry, has done uh, due diligence on hedge fund. I think for the people who are DIY investors who spend 10 hours a week, you just freed up 10 hours of their lives if they just take that good enough is good enough so that they can focus on, I feel, the more meaningful things, getting to know themselves and the opportunity cost of not getting to know themselves. You know, you can't quantify that, but it's time. I'll add something in there because... I've certainly had a fair number of people over the years tell me I'm full of crap from the perspective of DIY investing and whether you should rely on indexing. Something I've just come to terms with and I must accept, I guess I, you know, I guess at this point I want to accept is that lots of people find investing really really interesting. And it is interesting, you know. I left a career in academia to go work at Morningstar and then other investment firms. And like figuring out what's going on in global capital markets 24-7, it's like, it's intoxicating. One thing I realize is that it's really hard for professionals to win the game. And, you know, there's this whole school of thought, I think invented by, not invented, but amplified by Michael Mobison on the paradox of skill, which is that, you know, the best of the best compete against each other. It's the fact that you've gotten rid of the suckers at the poker table, and now it's just the pros, it's, it's that much harder to, to generate alpha, to, to demonstrate skill, and so forth. Lots of people I know find investing really interesting. It's a craft. In some ways, it's a hobby. And if that's what's meaningful to them, and it's sort of related to the second C, to control, it's, it's also related to the third C, competence, mastery. It's related to the first C. It's related to community. And that sense of, you know, hey, I'm part of a club of investors, like literally a club or part of FinTwit, you know, financial Twitter, and people in my world are trading this. And you look what's going on with Reddit and with the crypto bros. Like, these are social communities that people are, are generating meaning from. Whether or not that's healthy, unhealthy, it's none of my damn business. People should just come to terms with whether that's what's really important to them and they should go for it. I would say to kind of punctuate this, though, that for the most part, most people most of the time don't need to spend any time thinking about making good investment decisions. Because once you've got medium to long-term goals lined up, 
and you choose a portfolio of stocks and bonds and other securities that are reasonable and appropriate, and you're sort of maximized as best as possible the probability that you're going to be able to underwrite those goals, whether it be a flow goal or a terminal goal, like you alluded to earlier, then move on. Yeah. And, and thanks for bringing that up. And my own biases often get in my way of like what I, I feel. And as you're running through investing, yeah, it met all your C's. The one part that I always come back to is that the stakes are really high for some people in terms of making a mistake. And especially when we know from the data, it's really hard to beat the professionals like you pointed out. So I think absolutely the DIY investors get a lot of fulfillment. They can enter the feeling of flow. It's just being aware of, I feel like being aware that what's at risk, <laughs> like how much are you exposing yourself? And it just, I guess, through conversations, through people like you, clients, there's a lot of an emotional and cognitive drain that's going into it. And whether they're telling themselves negative stories when the market goes down on themselves, or they're adding to their like the attribution bias where they're patting themselves on the back too much when it goes up. I think it's just being aware of those biases that we have when we go invest. Brian, you made a, a joke earlier that we have eight hours. And I know that was a joke, but I feel like I could talk to you for eight hours. As we come to close, because I want to respect your time, which I know is another topic that you like to talk about is time. And with only a couple of minutes left, we don't have time for that. But let's say that you're, maybe it's Chicago, but picture wherever you are. And you may have heard the front porch exercise, but you're on a front porch in Chicago, in anywhere you want, the roof's blown off anywhere in the world. And you're looking over field, ocean, lake, city, it doesn't matter. And you're tasked with writing a letter to your children's grandchildren on how to underwrite a meaningful life, Mm. what would that letter contain? You're making me say something awkward, which is that I don't think I would change the 4C recipe because the 4Cs are based on timeless wisdom. We can go to the Bible, we can go to the Greeks and the Romans, but we can also go to Calvin and Hobbes and to Charlie Brown and the Peanuts and the Simpsons everything in between. I happen to believe that my great-grandchildren will have chips embedded in them. So what it's going to mean to be human in 100, 150 years, boy, I, I won't be around to know, but I think it's going to be different. I'll say that to the extent that humans continue as we've been for a few thousand years, that first and foremost, that sense of connection to others is going to be such a critical driver. I love all my children equally. So across my four C's, there's something to say about all of them. But that letter would be about connection. It would be about the people you love. It would be about the sense of belonging. But it would also be about commitment to others. I think one of the nasty wrinkles to modern society is that we've completely lost track of the ability to ask about our obligation to other people. So we never have conversations, at least in the U.S., about citizenship. We only have conversations about rights, but rights without obligations is a somewhat hollow existence. Again, deep topic, but I'd probably go in that vein. And now that you got my mind going, like... Maybe I'll go ahead and write, uh, maybe I'll write a blog on this, Yeah, <laughs> give you thanks on it. But what I have found with Geometry of Wealth and the hundreds of speeches and seminars I've given that touch on different themes in the book is that touching on people's humanity and what it means to be human and how we're connected to others and how that might be changing because of things outside of our control structurally, like the nature of the economy and capitalism, like the nature of technology, modern communication systems, and so forth. I'm endlessly fascinated by that tug and pull about what's immutable about humanity and the human spirit versus the particular noise that we're dealing with. Don't forget that when the Gutenberg press came around, was that 16th century or 15th century? I should know. What an uproar. I mean, people were freaked out by, you know, movable type. I'd say those days were probably a little less noisy than ours. But who's to say that in 30 or 300 years from now, things won't be just a wild cacophony that we couldn't even imagine, right? So I don't know, man. I'd write about this stuff. Well, it is recorded so you can start the letter if you you feel. As you were talking about that and towards your kids, it made me think of over the pandemic, 
working from home. I've been able to walk my kids and our bike to daycare every day. And you have, I believe it was on your book or podcast. I heard you talking about the tree line streets, walking your kid to uh, yep. school. I knew I enjoyed that moment every day with the kids so much, but when you, you gave me like words to what I was feeling. So uh, I appreciate that because now I even cherish it even more. We have a tree line street as well. So number one, I thank you. But number two, what a timely comment. I have three teenagers, my youngest, she's 14. And today was her eighth grade graduation from that school. I wrote about it in the book. Today was our very last walk on that tree line street ever. I mean, we'll walk down the street. We just won't be going to school. Wow. Well, I thank you because my son's starting kindergarten. So I have eight years ahead to make sure that I'm taking each day in. It's good stuff, man. It's such good stuff. And, and it sounds like you already know how to cherish the things that really matter. But uh, yeah, how funny you brought that up because today was literally the day that Sarah graduated from eighth grade and she's off to high school next year in a different part of town. Well, Brian, I won't take you up on the eight hours. I want to respect your time. We're three minutes over. Thank you so much for joining us on the Most Aid Effort podcast today. Really appreciate your time. Absolutely. And there you have it. Funded contentment for everyone. Brian is such a fascinating guy. I really, really enjoy his perspective. And I love his idea on underwriting a meaningful life. Because really... Isn't that what we're looking for? Is this meaningful, purpose-driven life? If you want to hear more from Brian, check out his book, The Geometry of Wealth, and then The Investor's Paradox. I am certain you'll enjoy those books. As always, thank you for tuning in. And if you want to share this episode with someone, please do, because I am certain they will enjoy it. Until next week, have yourself a great week.